The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. lecture outline, I think we had gone as far as down as uh, uh, 2B, overarching concerns. And um, I want to say a little bit about uh, Burton's exegesis at this point, not because Burton's view here is something that in itself requires a lot of attention, but I think it serves a very useful purpose uh, so far as um, uh, bringing up certain issues that uh, it just so happens that the way that Burton deals with them uh, helps us uh, formulate where the problems might lie. Machen makes a comment uh, to the effect that Burton's root error, root error, shows up here, namely in Burton's distinction between the ceremonial and the ethical. The ceremonial and the ethical with regard to the law. And uh, the point is that Burton in this passage argues that Paul is dealing only with the ceremonial aspect of the law and not with the ethical. And that is the that is the problem of legalism. You see, Burton used the term legalistic to refer specifically to people who are so concerned with the ceremonial details of the law. And in keeping with that, he argues also that the expression "erga noble," "erga noble," the works of the law, that refers specifically to legalistic ceremonialism through which we are justified and Paul is opposing that view of justification through the ceremonial legalism now you can see why Machen has a problem with that because it seems to leave open the view that all right, uh, we cannot be justified by keeping the ceremonial requirements of the law, but maybe we can be justified by keeping the ethical demands of the law. And you see, that's an even more serious form of legalism from Machen's point of view and my point of view. Now, again, in keeping with, with this whole uh, way of looking at the matter, Burton argues that the word hamartolos in verse 17 <coughs> means specifically a violator of the ceremonial law. In other words, when Paul says that uh, seeking to be justified uh, in Christ, we have found ourselves to be sinners. 
what Burton is saying is that all means that we have found it okay to violate the ceremonial requirements. So Hamartu laws has a very specific meaning of someone who uh, breaks the dietary laws, that kind of thing. But you see, according to Burton, such a violation is not a real violation of the law if you view the law totally and spiritually. And, and he really presses a distinction between the letter and the essential spirit of the law, or between the legalistic and the moral. So what, what you come up with is that for Peter to build up again that legalistic or ceremonial system, that is a real violation. And then Paul goes on to argue that the legal requirements drove me to despair and thus to die to them. And the purpose was so that he might devote himself, quoting here from page 137 of the commentary, the purpose of that was that he might devote himself directly to the service of God instead of to the keeping of the command to the keeping of commandments. That's letter, you see. But the spirit of the law is something else. So the keeping of commandments is viewed as uh, something which we're delivered from. Now, uh, you know, it, this is interesting because uh, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 7 which is conveniently ignored by almost everybody who talks about this sort of thing. Uh, neither a circumcision nor circumcision anything but the keeping of the commandments. And we'll, we'll get back to that because there is a very important conceptual parallelism between that statement in 1 Corinthians 7 and the same statement repeated in two different forms in Galatians. In chapter 5 or 6, neither circumcision nor circumcision anything but faith working through love. See? And then in chapter 6, verse whatever it is, uh, neither circumcision nor circumcision anything but the new creation. And it's as though faith working through love, new creation, and keeping the commandments of God is all of those three things, you see, are viewed by Paul as, as closely related and all of them being uh, the antinomy of arguing that either circumcision or uncircumcision is what matters. But we'll, we'll get back, we'll get to that eventually. Anyway... Um, so devoting oneself directly to the service of God as opposed to keeping commandments. Uh, that Paul is empowered to do by faith through the Spirit. Now, uh, Lightfoot interprets the, the word hamartolos more generally of uh, the giving up of Jewish privileges and recognizing that, that a Jew is no better than a Gentile sinner. But Burton regards this interpretation as taking things too far away from the historical context into the broader theological issue of justification. But you see, Burton's argument, I think, is, is blunted by the obvious fact that verse 16, which is certainly talking about justification, is part of the context. Uh, 
Uh, now, I, I, there is this element that, that we need to um, acknowledge. The expression hurethemen, or hurethemen, in verse 17, we have been found, even we have been found to be sinners, refers more naturally, if you will, to the historical incident in Antioch. Uh, you know, when Paul says you're living like a Gentile, then it does to the point of conversion. You see what I'm... In, Light, in Lightfoot's approach, men would be understood more as a reference to conversion, that once we uh, abandoned justification by the law and came to Christ by faith, that is what, that is the event by which we find ourselves to be sinners in this sense that Lightfoot means it, namely giving up Jewish privileges and acknowledging I'm no better than a Gentile, therefore I need to be justified by faith. Whereas, Burton may be correct in, in pulling us a little bit closer to the historical context and, and arguing, therefore, that uh, this event that Paul is referring to with the expression, we have found ourselves, that we ourselves are sinners, has a focus on the recognition that we need not continue the ceremonial laws and the dietary regulations and therefore the, the behavior of Peter and Antioch. You see, when, when Peter decides, okay, I'm going to live like a Gentile, in effect. That's what Paul is thinking about. Hey, guess what? In, in certain situations, we find ourselves to be just like them. Hamartoloi, because that's what Hamartolos could mean, you know, a Gentile. <clears throat> now, uh, with regard to the expression ergonomo, which uh, Burton understands in a, in a strictly legalistic sense, and you know Daniel Fuller also in his uh, writings has argued in a similar manner, and we'll come back to that. Um, there's, I don't think there's any need to deny that the phrase um, has a legalistic connotation. Nor do we need to deny that ceremonial regulations are primarily in view. See, this is where I think uh, things tend to get confused here because people polarize and dichotomize the issues. It's either, you know, the point of conversion and what is in view is faith in Christ over against any other kind of justification. Um, See, that's uh, one possibility. The other possibility is now it's only the ceremonial stuff that's in view. But I don't think you have to polarize things that way. I do think that there's the ceremonialism and the dietary uh, issues reflected in this question of uh, having a f uh, food fellowship with the Gentiles. That is, in fact, in view. That's the historical context. That's what's motivating this whole thing. But to suggest that, therefore, only ceremonialism is in view, that's what's completely unproven. Besides, to argue in that fashion suggests an explicit distinction in Paul's mind between 
the moral and the ceremonial explicit distinction. Uh, now, I happen to believe that this traditional distinction between the moral, ceremonial, and, and the civil, civic, uh, that is a valid distinction. But that's not to say that Paul makes a distinction in an explicit fashion. It's not at all, uh, I mean, there's nothing in the, in the text of Galatians to suggest that. So, if we tentatively reject this, this distinction, the sharp distinction between the ceremonial and the ethical, it may be possible to, to take Burton's view of Hamartolos and Lightfoot's view of Hamartolos and see that uh, we can come up with something, something between, if you will, that isn't just... Um, an unthinking attempt to mix ideas that are incompatible. Uh, in one sense, that's true. The way Burton looks at the text, the way, way life looks at that's those two things are incompatible. But the, the, way, the meaning in context of the word hamartolos given by Burton and given by life for those two things are not necessarily incompatible. And therefore, I would argue that the verse does focus on the historical aspect of ceremonialism with Burton and against Lightfoot. Not that Lightfoot would deny this, but uh, that's not where his emphasis lies. So the verse does focus on the historical aspect, but only as a manifestation of the broader issue, which is uh, in view in verses 15 and 16. And so the resulting meaning of verse 17 would be something like this. And I, um, let me give you what could be as a paraphrase of verse 17. If, uh, when we seek to be justified by Christ, it turns out that we break the ceremonial law, that is, we show that our Jewish privileges are, are nothing apart from Christ, does that mean that Christ has led us to sin? On the contrary, the sinful thing, Peter, is for you to build up the system that we have previously torn down. That is the system of uh, ceremonialism, which we, in, in principle, turned down, tore, uh, tore down uh, when we believed in Christ. So the moment of faith, the event of justification... Uh, is not out of the picture. It is very much out of the picture, even though the immediate motivation for the, for the controversy has to do with the ceremonial problems there in Antioch. Uh, if, when we seek to be justified by Christ, it turns out that we break the ceremonial law. In other words, we are overtly saying that our Jewish privileges are nothing outside from Christ. Does that mean that Christ has led us to sin? On the contrary, the sinful thing is to build up the system of ceremonialism that we have already torn down by coming to Christ in faith.
Now in the outline, the next, yeah, uh, question? The next item is the two systems. And uh, just very briefly to uh, uh, comment on the fact that the metaphor of tearing down and building up that you have there in verse 18, uh, that uh, set of metaphors does not have reference merely to the ceremonial issue but to the actual system of salvation that may be implied in certain contexts by the observance of ceremonialism. I recall when I, last week when I was talking about the overarching concerns of the passage, Paul was upset not simply because Peter observed the ceremonial law, but rather because he did it in a particular situation that coerced the Gentiles into a similar observance. And for the Gentiles to do that would be to uh, nullify the grace of God. So to live like a Gentile, uh, because one does not really have scruples about that, and then to reverse that, in effect, forces the, um, the Gentiles to Judaize. It coerces them into practicing the same ceremonialism. And for that to happen would be to undermine the grace of God. So in effect, two systems are envisioned in regard to justification. The human system, ex ergo nomo, and the divine system, ek pisteos or dia pisteos Jesu Christu. To come to Christ in faith is to build up this latter system of, of divine justification and to destroy the former. But now, uh, an interesting question arises there from verse... Um, 18, for if, for, if I, um, for if the things that I destroyed I build up again, parabaten emautan sunistano, I establish myself to be a, a transgressor. The uh, reasonable question could be asked, why would it be sin to build up this ex ergo nomo system? And the answer is perhaps the most profound statement here. It would be sinful because the law itself says so. Not just sinful, but you know, parabates means to transgress the law. So I would be, I, if I, if after destroying the ceremonial system which the law had taught, I come back and start and try to build up the same ceremonial system, I would be a violator of the law. Because the law itself says so. Through the law, through the law, I die to the law. The law itself commands me to become severed from it with regard to my standing before God. It, it really would be very difficult to find anything more profound in, in Paul's uh, uh, letters than that uh, uh, verse 19. 
dianomu, nomo apethanon. Those four words. Um, <laughs> I mean, you've got everything there. Th that's really foundational. Yeah. Well, that's the next thing. Uh, e, the Christian's death, because he says, I died uh, to the law, through the law, so that I might live um, to God. And then he expands on that by saying, I am crucified with Christ, uh, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God, faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the question then becomes, in what sense is verse 19 true? I mean, how is it true that the law itself uh, commands me to die to it, to become severed from it? Well, <clears throat> two passages probably come to mind. One is here in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, where um, uh, Paul makes that um, interesting statement that uh, when faith came, we were, um, under, we were in prison, uh, being guarded for the faith to be revealed, but when, uh, so that um, uh, the law has, uh, was really a pedagogos, um, our pedagogos, uh, to lead us to Christ. But, have, but the law, now the, the faith has come, we're no longer under such a paedagogos. You could relate chapter 2, verse 19, to chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. That the law was leading us to Christ, and in that sense, the law is commanding us to break from it. See, that's one possibility. Uh, the other possibility, other passage that may come to mind, is Romans chapter 7 beginning with verse 7. And this is quite a distinct approach. Uh, here you would argue something like this, um, and, and Ritterboss uh, takes this position very strongly. Namely, that the law, by its moral effects, namely revealing and provoking sin, uh, but not attenuating not attenuating, not attenuating that sin, drives men to Christ. Actually, here we get into a little bit of a problem because um, I shouldn't say... Um, I shouldn't have mentioned Ritterboss in that context. That's, that's misleading. Uh, let me, let me backpedal a little bit here. Romans 7 and Galatians 3, 23-25, um, it's not so much that they give you two completely different perspectives. It's that Romans 7 focuses on the, more on the subjective side of things, whereas Galatians 3 more on the objective, redemptive, historical side of things. But both of those passages could be, could be brought together in favor of the view that what 
chapter 2, verse 19 is saying is that the law, by revealing the nature of sin and even provoking sin without taking care of it, drives people to Christ. Now, you see, this would certainly be very compatible with the way in which, uh, say, Puritans uh, used to talk about the law, and, and this is certainly part of the Reformed understanding in, in, more, in a more general sense, that one of the main functions of the law is to you know, make people despair of themselves, and so to be uh, driven to salvation uh, in Christ without seeking to become acceptable to God by our own means. Now Machen, and he's not the only one, but uh, Machen argues that the immediate context here in chapter 2 argues for a somewhat different uh, approach. Namely, that the law brought Christ to the cross because of the penalty that, you know, whoever breaks the law, whoever sins and breaks the law, should die. And Christ vicariously, who bore our sin, was therefore brought to the cross, brought to death by the law, in that sense. And because Christ is my representative, I also died. And uh, Machen uh, says, Thus our death to the law suffered for us by Christ. Far from being contrary to the law was in fulfillment of the law's own demands. The law demands death for sin, and I did die because Christ died and I'm united to him. So in that sense, my death is a fulfillment of the law rather than being uh, contrary to the law. Follow that? Now, Ritterboss also takes that position in his book on Paul, page 410. And uh, you may want to read that in connection with this course. But uh, this is the way he puts it. The words through the law in 219 look to the sanctions of the law that fell on Christ when he gave himself up for his own, in particular to his death on the cross. But in that dying through the law, there took place at the same time the escape from the law, the dying to the law, for Christ as well as for those who are included in him. So you see that that uh, now, this is interesting. Um, I mean, Machen hadn't read Ritterboss. Presumably, he had read some of us. Um, but Machen is looking at this from a strictly redemptive historical view over against the more subjective side of things. So, um, you're taking, you're viewing the law as um, from two perspectives. One is the law. Um, leads to death in the sense that it, sanction, it sanctions, say, 
you know, whoever breaks these things ought to die. And in that sense, at least in that sense, it is a ministry of death. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. And uh, indeed, breaking the law leads to death. And because Christ took our sins, he died because the law, you know, said that he must die. Whereas the other perspective is looking at, at the law more in terms of its moral effect on people. You know, the, the moral effects. And when we see that we cannot keep the law, we, we become, you know, uh, depressed and feel hopeless. And uh, we find that the only solution to the problem is to stop trying to do the law on our own, but to be driven to Christ by faith. So obviously the redemptive historical is not totally out of the picture, but, but you see that uh, th there's a difference in focus. One looking at the experience of the individual as that the individual is brought under the um, uh, moral effects and, and uh, pronouncements of the law. The other one, looking not so much at, at my response to the law, but at what the law says must happen to me. I must die, and Christ dies for me, and I'm united with him, and therefore I have died to the law through the law, you see. I'm fulfilling the law by being united to Christ in his death. Now, when, uh, when I read Machen's understanding here, and then I look at the passage, if all I do is I read chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, the sense I get is that Machen is overloading the passage. Yet, uh, I have to admit that you could support this position by looking at Romans 7, not beginning with verse 7, but the first six verses of Romans 7. And you may want to look at that in, in some more detail at your leisure. Although Machen himself, himself doesn't refer to that passage. But there we have uh, the expression, Kai hu meis ethanatotheite, you also died, emphasizing God's action, to nomo, to the law, in the same case, dia, same preposition, to somatas to Christu, you died to the law through the body of Christ. So you might become of, of another one, the one who was raised from the dead. Hina, again purpose, as in, in verse 19, so that we might bear fruit to God, here in 2.19, so that we might live to God. The parallel here, I don't think, can be viewed as coincidental. And then in, in Romans 7, verse 6, the idea is repeated, in this in somewhat different dress. Now Burton uh, actually talks about that interpretation. He objects to it. And he may be true about this that an outright identification of Namu in in two nineteen with two somatos, the body of Christ in seven in seven uh, 
uh, for whatever it is seems unwarranted. There is some truth to that. But you see, Burton's real hang-up is a theological one, and that comes out more clearly in his discussion of chapter 3. That the two passages, 2.19 and the first part of Romans 7, are talking about the same thing is almost certain. And uh, I think that supports Machen's view. Interestingly, however, in verse 5 of Romans 7, Paul introduces the thought argued by the other side in, in this whole issue, for example, by Lightfoot. And what I'm getting at is that um, chapter 7, verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, tapathemata ton hamartion tatu tadiatunomu energeta entoismels in himon. The passions of the of sin, which um, were being wrought through the law in our members, see that is focusing on our our moral response to the law. It has provoked sin. So this parallel suggests that the two ideas which at first I set out as, as uh, opposed in some way, are really very strongly connected in Paul's mind. And perhaps it is misleading to extricate the one from the other in chapter 2, verse 19. Now, I'm, I'm usually very hesitant you know, to look at two interpretations and that appear to be different and then try to come up with, oh, both are true. But uh, it just struck me that uh, in Romans 7, 1 through 6, which seems to support so strongly Machen's perspective here, includes that other element. And, and maybe we're, uh, you know, forcing a dichotomy here that Paul didn't necessarily work with. At any rate, however you, you know, solve that problem, the main point is very clear. Paul is bringing in the law as a witness, that is, as evidence that we must sever ourselves from the law. And the law does that in at least two ways. One, by condemning Christ, with whom we die, and by making us aware of our insufficiency so that we end up abandoning it. So the distinction here does seem to correlate with that of the accomplishment and the application of redemption. Perhaps to stress one over the other is to do precisely what Paul uh, refuses to do in either passage, in Galatians 2 or in Romans 7. In any case, uh, it is interesting that uh, there is a sense, at least, in which Paul thinks that, that the law contributes to the work of the New Covenant, both in its accomplishment and its, in its application. It's accomplishment by sending Christ to the cross, and that's developed in chapter 3 when he speaks about he bore the curse of the law. But the law also plays a part in the application of redemption 
to the extent that our being exposed to the law uh, provokes sin in us and makes us more aware of our need for Christ. Now, having understood that or having reflected on that, verse 20, that verse that everybody memorizes and nobody knows where it's found, verse 20 takes on a fresh and uh, very concrete meaning. See, the law is viewed here as a hostile power that obstructs life. Thus, the human system of, of works of the law results in death to God. On the other hand, if we die to the law, which is to die to sin, which is to die to the world, we're in effect adopting a different system, faith in Christ, and thus true life. Yeah, keep in mind that all that I meant by severed to, I'm trying to understand what the word to die means. And I think that the, the figure of death is used by Paul because in terms of our experience, there's nothing more that, that more forcefully and emotionally uh, helps us understand what separation, what, what being severed from something or from someone is. Uh, so that's, that's all I meant by severed from. But death is even a stronger way of, of, putting, of putting the idea. But yeah, uh, I would want to argue that Paul does not is not suggesting that uh, this distancing or severance or death or whatever uh, has um, um, has to be viewed in the most comprehensive way possible. He has something specifically in focus. Well, um, see, I'm I'm never bothered by. I should say I'm never bothered because it is possible to. Know, flatten the the epistles, but um, uh, if you had another class from me, would it be fair or inaccurate to read, you know, what I said in this class into another class? Uh, I mean, I would say, I hope you will. Because, I mean, I hope you will not interpret what I said in that class in a way that contradicts what I'm saying here, but that you'll try to you know, understand the two together. So I, in principle, that doesn't bother me. And specifically, when you have you know, a fairly obvious parallelism, that's not a problem. However, uh, there is already a little bit of a, of a contra, uh, con uh, well, it's a bit of a problem to say that um, the context of Galatians 3 supports one rather than the other, and, and maybe I misspoke myself before, because part of the difficulty is that in chapter 3, you have both, probably. Now, we'll have to wait until we get there to make sure what, what we're going to say about that. If, if you focus on verse 13, you know, Christ has become a curse for us, that's very much redemptive history and not our personal experience. If you focus on verses 23 to 25, I know that I call that redemptive historical because, uh, yeah, that's part of what's involved. But uh, there's a lot of controversy as to what does it mean for the law to be our pedagogos to lead us to Christ. And, and traditionally, that has been understood 
this way. So depending upon whether or not you think this is in view in, in chapter 3, verse 23 to 25, that would also affect your, uh, the way that you phrase the question. Um, now, I would want to argue, you see, and, and we'll have to wait until we get there, but in verse 19, when Paul speaks about um, why then the law, well, it was added to what? How are you going to, for the sake of sin. And uh, there is a good probability, although it is not agreed by everyone, that that expression, carin uh, parabasion, of transgressions, is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. But I have to wait for that. Of course, remember that, that what I, part of what I'm getting at is that uh, I suspect that if we had Paul here and we asked him, he might be surprised at the question. Perhaps he did, you know, he, but it, it's still a, I think, a valid question to ask. And I would say that in the Colossians 2 passage, the, uh, the tearing down of the wall partition being kind of a focal point there uh, suggests that it is the this side that's primarily in view. I think. Okay, I want to get started with chapter three, and um, <clears throat> as you can see, I uh, deal with verses 1 through 6 as um, introductory. And I want to deal with a couple of uh, matters uh, fairly briefly. I don't want to take a lot of time here, but uh, it's, it's an important passage, actually. In fact, uh, Charles Cosgrove, in his book on the cross and the spirit, views this passage as this is it. I mean, here's where Paul finally focuses specifically on the problem. And therefore, he believes that the whole letter needs to be interpreted in the light of, of what he's saying. I think that's an overstatement myself, but it would be silly to deny that uh, this is a crucial passage. And uh, just to say a couple of things about the emotion that surfaces here and which serves to recognize, to uh, helps us appreciate that, that Paul is really concerned about what he's about to say here. It is personal. I mean, that already comes out in the, um, in, in the kind of question that he asked in verse 2, only this do I want to, to learn from you. Um, Paul's reflections on the death of Christ at the end of chapter 2, and particularly on the fact that the Galatians' conduct is a denial of the value of that death. All of that uh, makes him break forth with a battery of questions uh, formulated in, in really highly emotional tones. Twice he calls them annoyed, fools. Uh, he suggests that they have been hypnotized. You know, baskanen, verse 1. And that they are abandoning the spirit I mean, that's clearly implied when he says in verse 3, having begun the spirit, do you now seek to come bring things to an end in the flesh? It sounds like they're abandoning the spirit. In short, 
their experiences in the gospel threaten um, to have been in vain in spite of the fact that through the proclamation of the gospel they saw Jesus crucified before their very eyes. Ellicott uh, paraphrases that first verse uh, beautifully. He says, Who could have bewitched you by his gaze when you had only to fix your eyes on Christ to escape the fascination? So, the emotion of the passage. But let's go on to uh, something more of the substance here in number two, the proclamation of the gospel. A theme that is already expressed in verse one by that proegraphe. But uh, what I want to do here is pay, pay special attention to the phrase ex acoeis pisteos, ex acoeis pisteos, through the hearing of faith. I think uh, it is Fung in his commentary for the NIC that uh, lists as many as eight different possible interpretations of the phrase, depending upon how you look at it. I think uh, that's um, you know going a little bit too far. There are two or three, you know, because aqua can have more than one meaning, and because a gentif can have more than one meaning, then you start multiplying possibilities. That that's what going on. There are basically four, I would say, but even that, I think, can, can be restricted a little bit. Uh, obviously, the, the word aqua may mean a report or a preaching. In other words, not the act of hearing so much as that which is heard. Uh, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, um, having received the word of here, logon aquais. And uh, this is the way that Bauer takes it. Uh, in his lexicon, he translates this passage as the result of the preaching which demanded faith. Uh, X through or as a result of, then the preaching, and then taking the pisteos as an objective genitive, uh, the preaching which demanded faith. And this objective genitive fits the context nicely, uh, except that Lightfoot argues that if you take it that way, it does not provide the proper contrast to ergon. What does he mean by that? Well, <coughs> ergon, uh, ergon. Lightfoot's point is that ergon uh, means the activity of the individual. And therefore, you lose an important piece of parallelism if you take aqua, because uh, aqua is it's after x. Uh, if you take aqua here in the sense of a report of the preaching, rather than the hearing, then you lose that parallelism of of the individual's activity on both. 
and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So then uh, the second possibility is the literal meaning hearing, which uh, could be taken as either as a, um, with, with the pistils, could be taken as either a subjective genitive, that is the hearing which comes from faith. So if you hear the gospel preached, that evokes faith in the hearer. That's the way Lightfoot takes it. Or as a descriptive kind of genitive, um, a believing kind of hearing, a believing kind of hearing, or a hearing accompanied by faith. No, no, it's still, uh, well, no, okay. <laughs> I see what you mean. Um, the f the f for the first one, I was talking about ACOA. If you take ACOA, meaning report, then you would almost surely take this as an objective genitive. If you take akoe in, in the active sense of hearing, uh, then the question is that pisteos, because this is the genitive, that's the question, right? Uh, would probably be either a subjective genitive, the hearing which comes from faith, or a descriptive genitive, a believing kind of faith. Um, one of those two. And, and either of them, I should say, calls to mind Romans 1.5, heupako uh, epistios, the obedience of faith. What does Paul mean by the obedience of faith? Well, the obedience evoked by faith or uh, an obedience characterized by faith. Uh, we had a, uh, an article in the Westminster Journal a couple of years ago by Donald Garlington in which he uh, spent a lot of time on that question. And um, I don't want to get into that one right, right now. But um, as I mentioned already, uh, Lightfoot argues that um, this presents a better contrast to ergon, which seems to require some word expressing the part taken by the Galatians themselves. However, uh, although I, I don't deny that there is some force to what Lightfoot is saying there, as a matter of fact, if you wanted to press the parallelism, you would also need an objective sense for pistils. See what I'm saying? If you want to press the parallelism and you say, well, this is the activity, so that must be the activity of the Galatians, well then, Ergo namu, uh, the works of the law, uh, would have to be an objective. Uh, sorry, yeah. The, no, that's not right. Let me think for a second. Uh, oh, no. No, it, has, it doesn't have to do with, uh, with whether it's an objective genitive or not, but whether the noun ought to be taken in an objective sense. That is, pistis, not faith in the sense of believing, but this is in the sense of the faith, the gospel. Okay? So um, one would argue, one could argue that therefore, if, if you really want to press the parallelism, then it's the works of the law and the hearing of the gospel. And in fact, uh, that's the way that John Bly uh, takes it. 
and, and that really, really is pushing it in my way of thinking. You can further argue against Lightfoot that the activity of the Galatians would be clearly expressed by the Pistios anyway, if you're taking this other position, you see. And, and there's no need to argue, well, this has to be the activity as well. So I am disposed to take the, uh, the first possibility, um, partly because of the parallel with Romans 10, verse 17. Um, therefore, faith comes from hearing. But Akwe there is undoubtedly the preaching. Faith comes from, from hearing that would, from, from the thing that is heard. And if you look at the, at the, uh, at the passage, that's a clear indication of, of the flow of the argument. Besides, there are only two passages in the New Testament where the word Akwe does not mean report. And in those two passages, the context makes perfectly plain that, uh, that it has to be the active idea of hearing. Uh, the two passages are 1 Corinthians 12, 17 and 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and following. 1 Corinthians 12, 17, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and following. My point is this. In those two passages, it clearly means hearing, and the meaning report is not possible really in the context. But in every other passage, um, it, it means report or preaching, the thing heard. And I think that's not a conclusive, but a significant argument to take it that way here as well. Perhaps most important of all is the fact that the immediate context has already called attention to the proclamation of the gospel. So um, I, I, that's the way that I would take it, although I wouldn't necessarily interpret the genitive quite the way that Bauer does. Uh, I wouldn't say so much that uh, it is the, um, um, the preaching which demands faith, but maybe more like the preaching that produces faith, the preaching that produces faith. And that seems to be the idea in Romans 10, 17. Notice, moreover, that Paul pays special attention to the verifiability of, the, of that event. It is verifiable, why? Because he can point to specific things. Top pneuma elabete, you receive the Spirit, verse 2. And arxamenoi pneumate, you haven't begun in the Spirit, verse 3. Ho epichoregon top pneuma kainergon dunames, verse 5 the one who provides a spirit and works miracles. And, and because of all that, incidentally, that's one of the, the reasons, and we talked about this already, where I think that the apathite of verse 4 probably has a reference to the good experiences of, of the reception of the spirit. Having experienced such things, you see, uh, was that all in vain? couldn't possibly be in vain. In any case, all of these concerns basically set the tone for everything that follows. 
But now, before we leave this passage, I also need to say something about the distinction between flesh and spirit. Uh, as, I, as I already commented in verse 3, when he says, are you now completing uh, through the flesh? Clearly, Paul sees the behavior of the Galatians as a denial of the work of the Spirit. 